Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Снова вас. С новым веком. The United States and NATO have formally rejected Russia's demand for a de facto sphere of influence in the former Soviet space. Russian troops are encircling Ukraine and are positioned to attack from Russia in the east and southeast, from the annexed Crimean Peninsula in the south, and from Belarus in the north. U.S. President Joe Biden has placed thousands of troops on high alert and is considering deployments to the Baltic states, Poland, and Romania. And the West is warning of crippling sanctions that would effectively cut Moscow off from the global economy, including export bans of semiconductors and other high-tech goods if Russia reinvades Ukraine. The prospect of a major land war in Europe, perhaps the largest conflict since World War II, appears more likely than ever. But as Vladimir Putin continues his brinkmanship, how much popular and elite support does he really have to start a war? Do Russians have any idea what is coming? If he does, and how might they react? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back to the podcast, Maria. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for thanks for coming. And also joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is another old friend of mine, Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back to the podcast, Kosti. It's always good to see you. Hi, Brian. Hi, Marsha. Hi. All right. So, so Maria, I want to start with you because I know that you keep very, very close tabs on public opinion in Russia. And recent polls that I've looked at from the Levada Center show that Russians blame the United States, NATO, and Ukraine for the current crisis. But the same polls show that only a minority of Russians, just 36%, according to the latest figures I've seen, think that war is likely, which contrasts very much with the attitudes you're seeing in Western capitals, where people think this is probably going to happen. How are Russians viewing this crisis? And what do you expect from Russian public opinion, Maria? Uh, yes, I have to say, I just arrived uh, from Russia last week, and uh, the attitudes towards this crisis on both sides of uh, the Atlantic, uh, I have to say, may make someone schizophrenic. Uh, because Russians, uh, in my experience, just even talking to them, right, the majority of them do not believe uh, that any uh, threat of war is real. Uh, most of them, many of them at least, blame the United States for uh, promoting this conspiracy theory for their own political reasons. Even the smarter liberal Russians, I mean, the Russians I used to thought, think were smarter, promote these ideas. Uh, by contrast, of course, here in the United States, uh, uh, there's a lot of intelligence and uh, military analysts, um, information about the really uh, growing odds of such an escalation and the military buildup. 
However, uh, looking at the polls, uh, Brian, as you said, it's true that the, um, actually the recent uh, Dennis Volk, the head of Levada, uh, published an article at, yes. on the riddle. He says that one-fourth of respondents consider an armed conflict between Russia and NATO possible. And one-fourth is not a lot. It's only 25%, right? But it's actually a higher number that the Sega had in the past. So there is some growing alarm about the conflict. Uh, and um, about 40%, as you said, already at this point believe that there might be some uh, developments on the uh, escalation between uh, Russia and Ukraine. What is striking, as you said, is that even by Russian own standards, the majority that assigned the escalation on uh, to Russia, like blame Russia for, frankly, the military buildup that when we've been witnessing since November on Ukraine's borders, it's only 3%. Uh, mm -hmm. Russia has at least 10-15% of liberals, and the 3% is an extremely, extremely low number. Uh, why so low? Uh, that's the question I have to say. I'm extremely, even I uh, get sometimes disappointed <laughs> in my <laughs> homeland, even if, uh, I mean, you would think I should stop. Uh, several reasons. Uh, first of all, of course, there's no domestic liberal opposition. Everybody's jailed or in exile. So in the past, uh, political leaders like Nemtsov would organize uh, peace marches, for example, against Russia's 2014 aggression against Ukraine. Now all of this political leadership is essentially silent. So pretty much no one is talking about that. Uh, second, uh, it feels to me that the majority of Russians have other um, issues that bother, concern them much more. Uh, inflation, economic stagnation, low wages. Uh, these are issues of high salience. And in my opinion, it's the issues of low salience, uh, such as foreign policy at this point, where uh, the domestic propaganda still seems to affect uh, the view. So when uh, something concerns you, right, you explore that, you see that firsthand, you know, for example, the inflation is rising, you do not trust the propaganda. But on the issues of the foreign policy, you don't necessarily follow as closely, you don't personally observe the military buildup. And hence, uh, it's less of relevance to you. Uh, and thirdly, as I said, as I started, it's true, it's reality that a lot of Russians just simply do not believe there is any war coming. It's just completely unrealistic in their opinion. It's against Putin's uh, interest. It's going to further worsen domestic economic situation. And some analysts have even suggested that some sort of Stockholm syndrome that we might be observing in Russia, like people just refuse to believe uh, mm. that the country is doing something bad. So these are the possible explanations for this conundrum. Yeah, and, I mean, I saw some interesting trends in the polls, and that is that when you broke down for age, the younger cohort tends to be more likely to blame Russia, still not a majority, but still more likely to blame Russia for, for what's going on and more likely to expect war um, when it's broken down for media consumption. Those that get their news primarily on the internet are more likely to blame Russia and more likely to um, to to expect war. Although, again, by no means majorities, not even close. So, so, have you noticed any any other trends like that that are bearing out? I mean, the young and those that are getting their their news from new media tend to have a more a clearer picture of this. This is a classic divide, right? We've discussed it a number of times, even on your podcast, uh, Brian. Right? Those people essentially with more access to independent information. Uh, those are who actually communicated this uh, information about uh, what's going on on the, on the border with Ukraine, these uh, videos uh, on the social media about these tanks moving to Ukraine's mm. border, right? Right. Actually, quite uh, quite impressive videos, I have to say. Uh, but there's also a broader uh, issue with even the Russian liberals who 
actually refused uh, for at least a month, uh, the, the time that I spent in Russia, now actually acknowledge uh, the uh, problem. Um, uh, or any, It's probably because people are very much um, into Russia's domestic problem. They just don't see any rationale uh, between, uh, behind Putin's doing uh, what he's Probably yeah, no, this is this is a trend I've seen talking to Russian liberals about this. They tend to view everything through a domestic politics lens where those of us here in Washington, we're viewing it through a geopolitical lens. I don't think you could separate the domestic politics and the geopolitics, but I think this is being driven by, by other things that are not domestic. But how the Russian public reacts to this is highly relevant. I want to bring Kostya in. Kostya, one of the things many observers, myself included, have noted uh, as this crisis unfolded and escalated at the end of last year and the beginning of this year was the lack of an overt anti-Ukrainian propaganda uh, campaign on Russian state media. Um, this contrasts sharply to, to 2014, um, the time when Russia was annexing Crimea and, and, and intervening in the Donbass. There was a wall-to-wall uh, propaganda uh, campaign on, on, on all Russian channels at that time. Um, this was absent um, until recently, but in recent weeks, there has been an uptick in anti-Ukrainian as well as anti-US and anti-NATO disinformation on Russian social media accounts. This includes old tropes like accusing Ukraine of being aligned with Nazism, um, of plans to commit genocide against Russian speakers in Ukraine. You see a lot of this popping up on social media now, um, very recently. Kostya, how do you see the information environment evolving inside Russia? How do you expect it to evolve? And how do you expect Russians to react? Brian, not only on social media. You see now these uh, tropes uh, being promoted um, on Russian state TV. Actually, this morning I watched a selection of Russian state TV talk shows, and uh, you have already this notion of a Russian Donbass that has to be saved from Ukrainian Nazis, quote unquote. Mm. Uh, so yes, the narrative has changed. And I think that it has changed because uh, there is no longer this kind of uh, conversation and even artificial hope that the United States will see the Russian light and uh, uh, follow the instructions in Putin's ultimatum. Uh, so I suppose that now Moscow is weighing uh, the new options. And frankly speaking, I don't think there are many. I think that the Russian public, although it is completely confused, and I agree with Masha that actually it doesn't think it's relevant because it doesn't think it's real, because for people, Ukraine is very far away. But I think that public opinion is softened enough to accept a certain type of Russian military activity in case this is swift, victorious, and clearly explained. And there is a problem here. Until recently, I thought that for Putin, the most feasible action will be not, of course, an all-out invasion, but rather manufacturing a pretext. And for, for fear of being cynical, I still have to say it's, you know, blowing up a kindergarten in Luhansk and then saying it was done by uh, the Ukrainian Spetsnaz, and then announcing that Russia takes the areas it already controls under military protection, i.e. just legalizing its military presence there in order to save the Russians of Donbass from, you know, the Ukrainian radicals, and then impose on Kiev new talks. Uh, because I think Putin realizes that the Minsk agreements are dead, 
and no Ukrainian leader will ever uh, fulfill even one-tenth of them. Um, but still, there are kind of uh, people in Europe that always want you know, dialogue at any cost. So maybe without actually recognizing the so-called separatist republics, quote-unquote, he can say, well, we have a humanitarian crisis. Tell me why I shouldn't be there. Do you really need 175,000 troops for that, though? <laughs> Look, keeping Ukrainians on their toes, preventing any kind of military action, showing the muscle, but it's part of a threat. I, I'm not excluding an all-out invasion, but I think now it's clear that this will be an extremely costly exercise, Yeah, which will also, and I think this is even more important than sanctions, which will shut up the whole Putin Fersteya, Putin Understander Brigade across the European Union. One would hope. Uh, I think that if it's an all-out war, it will be quite difficult to for all these kind of German politicians to stand up and say, well, you know, we need talk. And it will also shut Putin up in the cage of international isolation, probably which will be even smaller than the one in which he resided until Biden, in my view, mistakenly invited him for a summit in Geneva. Uh, I suppose that maybe starting to probe with Donbass is a more feasible solution for Putin. And he one sees it because the Russian Duma, the pocket Duma has been given order in order to um, prepare a treaty of recognition, of course, on their own initiative. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Uh -huh. uh, and also um, there was talk of supplying arms to Donetsk and Luhansk by some, uh, again, pocket Duma members. Uh, the Kremlin said, no, 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 what, no, think about it, but we know it's a game. And it's a game which could, by the way, cut both ways. It could prepare the public opinion that Putin will move in and uh, create a new fait accompli um, uh, on, in eastern Ukraine, or it could be preparation for quietly withdrawing, because Putin then will look as a man of peace. He resisted the radicals in Russia who wanted him to, to take military action. He's prepared to talk. Uh, he is not an extremist as opposed to those pesky Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. uh, could be both ways, but I think if we're thinking about some kind of action on the ground, then they are preparing something in Donbass rather than an all-out war. Mm. Now, I'm, when I'm looking at the positioning of these forces, and we, we had our mutual friend Michael Kaufman on the podcast last week, the positioning of these forces suggests a much more comprehensive plan, but we'll see going forward. Um, Just wanted to point out that any such conversation inevitably moves us away from Russia's domestic opinion. Yes, right? yes, yeah. Because it's an yeah. international issue, obviously, yeah. Yeah, I think no, the it, Russian public opinion... I'm being very, very probably pessimistic here. But I think that Putin is con convinced that he can sell anything to the Russian public opinion. Yeah, I think and it's I a, a point. Is that actually COVID-19 proved that. Because Putin looks around and sees essentially like anti-COVID revolutions across the world, uh, people protesting. I mean, I'm not with them, with these people, but he sees a lot of turmoil. Nothing in Russia, no matter what the government does, nothing. Well, people just disregard it. I saw it. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> they basically but, just disregard it. But yeah. there is no tension. Uh, and he has 620 or 30 uh, billion dollars of reserves. He thinks he can do something. But I think recently 
what we've seen is is something that may be a game changer. But mm. we can, we can talk about it later. Yeah, and I I, I want to dive into kind of what the the elite opinion in, in the business community a little bit now. My understanding is the business community is getting a bit a bit nervous. But before I do, I want to talk about the timing of because a lot of people are asking the question why now. And I know Maria, you wrote a a, a really good piece for Foreign Policy that was just published yesterday on this, laying out the case of why why now. What did you find in terms of why now? What, what drive what's driving Putin? timing. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. And I have to say, I did not uh, this time around refer, refer to Russia's domestic situation, which is also sort of aligned with what Kostya just said. I do not see that as being a major constraint or a major factor in Putin's thinking. Although you could argue that this current prosecution and repressions against Russia's opposition are at least partly meant to silence possible uh, dissent if it emerges against the war, right? You want the country united around the supreme leader in times of trouble. Uh, but I don't think in any way domestic politics actually drives uh, this calculus. Nor, nor, think, do, nor do I. I think domestic mm -hmm. politics is important to understand because it's going to become important as the war progresses. And, and how, as a constraint yeah. in his thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think is important for sure is that uh, in Putin's uh, calculus, understanding Ukraine is slipping away. Uh, last summer, we've seen this uh, very emotional article of his that he's published on historic unity of Russians and Ukrainians. He de facto acknowledges in this piece that the Minsk agreements have failed, and he had a lot of interest in those. Uh, next, he also observes the military collaboration that's deepening between uh, NATO, the United States, and Ukraine. Ukraine military has been slowly modernizing. And the society's opinion, the public opinion in Ukraine, also is becoming slowly even more pro-Western, pro-NATO, and pro-EU. And last but not least, the campaign against Medvedchuk, uh, mm -hmm. Putin's agent, if you will, in Ukraine, and the uh, sanctions list, and also his channels, as well as also associated people. I think has also perceived him by uh, Putin as extremely hurtful uh, moment to his leverage over Ukraine. And by the way, it's not by incident that we saw the first military buildup in April 2021. Uh, Kostya also referenced it, after which uh, Putin actually was offered a meeting in Geneva uh, by Biden. That was that actually followed Zelensky's campaign against uh, Medvedchuk and his assets. Uh, we also, however, observe a fairly strong weakness on the a fairly pronounced weakness on the side of the EU. I think the, there's also a lot of constraints associated to the gas. Gas prices are very high, and uh, that probably will limit the EU ability to counter Putin if something serious happens. The U.S. is also is not a particularly strong position. It's partly, I think, the function of the policies that have been introduced. We have not yet seen any serious sanctions on Russia for Navalny's poisoning, Nord Stream 2 sanctions have been lifted, etc., etc. And because of the skyrocketing oil prices, I think Biden is also somewhat constrained in sanctions on Russia because those are likely to drive uh, the oil prices even further. I think all of those factors uh, actually really are impactful on points calculus and. Also, as we know, Russia being the typical petrostate, in my opinion, mm. uh, its leadership acts more aggressively and provocatively on the international stage. When the oil prices are high, they feel like they own the world in this moment. And we um, historically see this pattern that when hydrocarbonates, gas and oil prices are high, when they peak, this is when usually Russia and the Soviet Union uh, used to uh, start wars, starting with Afghanistan, through Georgia, Ukraine 2014, all the way up until to 2022, but hopefully this time will be an exception. We'll see. 
Yeah, no, and Maria, I'm, you, you've you've done a lot of research on that and kind of broke ground on this in the past um, with, with research showing the relationship between the oil price and Russia's uh, Russia's aggression. I think you hit the main the main notes here, though. It was it's been very clear since last spring that the Ukraine was intensifying its cooperation with the West. I think the Medvedchuk uh, arrest, I mean, he was arrested and put under house arrest and charged with high treason. Um, Medvedchuk is, uh, Putin is the, the godfather of Medvedchuk's daughter. The two are very, very close, but Medvedchuk is also one of Putin's main vectors of influence. Um, I also think Putin sees an opportunity right now with the West divided, distracted, angry and sullen. Um, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan certainly probably emboldened him a bit. But I think there's a broader, larger thing going on here. And I want to kind of bring us back to Russian domestic politics and Russian public opinion on this, because I am noticing, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the two of you are noticing as well, a lot of high profile pieces in the Russian media talking about restoring at least some form of the Soviet Union or restoring some form of the old empire. I've said this in this program before, and I'll say it again this year, marks the centenary of the forming of the Soviet Union in, in, in December of 1922. So we're coming up at the centenary. We all know that Putin is extremely cognizant of anniversaries and symbolism and things like that. Um, last December also marked the 30th anniversary of the breakup of the Soviet Union, something Putin would prefer to to forget about. But the, the founding of the Soviet Union 100 years ago this year is something I think is playing into this. Um, there was the, the, the first piece along these lines that caught my attention was, of course, written by Vladislav Surkov, um, the longtime Putin aide who often telegraphs a lot of these things in his, his writing. Um, Surkov wrote this article which basically argued that Russia needs to expand or die. Russia has to be an empire. Russia has to expand imperially. I'm going to quote very very briefly from the Surkov piece. He writes, social entropy is highly toxic. toxic. It is not recommended to work with it at home. It needs to be taken out somewhere far away, exported for disposal in a foreign territory. For Russia, constant expansion is not simply an idea but a genuine existential reality of our historical existence. That's, oh, that's uh, taken, may I interrupt quickly? That's taken that, straight from Kissinger's uh, world yeah. order. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's playing here with the third law of thermodynamics, basically saying that, they, uh, talking, but he's saying, talking about social entropy. Um, and saying that the solution to Russia's domestic – because of Russia's domestic problems, they have to expand. He concludes the essay by saying this. In the coming years, Russia will receive a share of new, new lands, as was the case in the era of the Third Rome or the Third International. Russia will expand not because it is good and not because it is bad, but because it is physics. Surkov is basically saying the quiet part out loud here, saying Russia is inherently expansionistic. So that's one thing I noticed. Another thing I noticed was Mikhalkov um, in a television interview saying that you should form a Soviet Union of the three former, the three Slavic former Soviet republics, so Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. That touched off a bunch of debate. Um, with a bunch of other nationalists weighing in, saying, "Well, what about Kazakhstan? Right? So, so they, what about what about the South Caucasus?" But the the point is that this idea of imperial restoration is very much in the discourse right now, openly from prominent people like Surkov and Mikhalkov and others. Um, I wanted to ask both of you what you kind of make of that. Go ahead, Maria. 
Uh, thank you. That's an extremely important point, uh, Brian, and resonates also interestingly with what Dmitry Trenin said in his recent Commerçant interview, which was just published a couple of days ago. Exactly the same idea. He essentially says that uh, the post-Soviet uh, Russia is looking for a new kind of uh, reason to reconnect, re reassemble the, the, some of the territories in the post-Soviet space, especially that uh, Putin regime already and also Yeltsin's Russia has created these quasi-states, a bunch of them, uh, starting from Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, now DNR, mm. LNR. So they potentially may be not also only be recognized as a possible solution to this current uh, kind of uh, stalemate in uh, Ukraine, but also reincorporated in some sort of uh, union state of Russia and Belarus, if Ukraine resists uh, uh, to join. And so this will be the newly created union, which of course will be offered to the Russians as uh, Putin's historic achievement, right? And also perhaps some put some logical, at least put some logical um, goal to the current uh, foreign policy that Russia runs in the region. That's actually uh, is a combination of uh, successes, but also a lot of failures. I think that's something very much on their mind. And I also wanted to bring up that Russia historically, especially after collapse, after collapse of the Soviet Union, has been in the search of some kind of uniting uh, core idea. And uh, Yeltsin's Russia largely failed uh, to do to find it. And that's why uh, one of the reasons we had Putin, whose national idea for Russia uh, historically has been going back in time, right? Remember mm. that he returned by with the reintroduction of the Soviet anthem. That's the th mm. one of the key first um, decrees that he signed uh, once he got the power. Uh, also, uh, keep in mind that Russian elites is a lot, to a large extent Soviet. Uh, in the recent work with Kirill Petrov uh, from Gimov, we actually show that up to 60% of top 100 Russian elites right now trace their background uh, in the Soviet nomenclature, either by their career at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union or their families. So two almost two-thirds of Russian elites right now uh, actually, Soviet nomenclature, they have nothing else to offer to the Russian people mm. besides going back in time. So I think that's very much one of the ideas. The question is, to what extent it's feasible? And of course, the economic, uh, economic expense, the economic cost that will be associated to such reincorporation of the former lands, Soviet lands together, is probably also enormous. Yeah, no, uh, Marie, we, we, we see this, um, this huge disconnect between the massive generational uh, turnover that's happening in Russian society, right? We were the, the post-Soviet generations, the millennials and, the, and Gen Z are, are becoming you know, coming of age and, and becoming more prominent in society, but you're not seeing a concomitant turnover in the ruling elite. Now, on this question of empire and restoration, though, I am, I am on the more skeptical side of all of this. Um, I don't think that Putin has in mind something modest, uh, like recognizing the DNR and the LNR. He's already recognized Abkhazia and South, South Ossetia. I think, I, I mean, I'm really, I, I'm looking at a worst case scenario here. I think in this centenary year of the founding of the Soviet Union, I think he wants the whole enchilada. Um, I think he wants to take as much as he can. He's already got Belarus, basically. He doesn't have to invade Belarus. He's got it, right? He's, um, and, and he, now he's, he's threatening to take Ukraine by force. But then look around the rest of the former Soviet Union. Um, the recent events in Kazakhstan have dramatically increased Russia's leverage. Uh, Georgia is basically ruled by a, an oligarch who is connected to the Kremlin, despite the wishes of the Georgian people to move closer to the West. So he's got, he's got little pieces in place everywhere. But I think every Russian empire starts with Ukraine. Every Russian empire starts with Ukraine. No Russian empire ever ends with Ukraine. 
but it always starts with Ukraine. Um, Ukraine and Belarus, you look back to the founding of the Soviet Union in 1922, who were the first republics in addition to Russia? It was Ukraine, Belarus, and the what was then called the Transcaucasian Republic, right? But it always starts with Ukraine. I'll never forget a, an interview I was doing with a Yeltsin-era official describing the decision to break up, to, to allow the breakup of the Soviet Union in 91, and he said it was when Ukraine declared independence. And I said, why did that, why was that so decisive? And he said, kakoi sayuz bez Ukraini. What kind of union can we have without Ukraine? So I think they're thinking more of in a maximalist way. Of course, only only time will tell to, to, to cite an overused cliche, but I think that's where we're going. Cost you anything to add on this? What do you see in this uh, empire chic that we're basically seeing in the Russian public discourse right now um, from people like Surkov and Mikhalkov and others? I think that they feel what kind of winds are blowing uh, inside the Kremlin walls. They couldn't help but notice Putin's obsession with Ukraine, his whatever, five or 7,000 word article about it, and uh, then his video explained, like he thought it's not enough, has to do a video explainer. Um, I think, on the other hand, uh, of course, it's not only just uh, being obsequious uh, towards uh, the great leader, uh, although there is a, quite a bit of that, because people like Mikhalkov and Surkov know uh, how important it is to be mm, to be to, to have good favors of uh, the leaders, Surkov especially, because he was once kicked out. Uh, but I think that even with Putin's understanding of symbolism, and let me remind you, uh, this year is also his 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, the cost of such a gift could be remarkably high. A full-scale invasion of Ukraine will be a very bloody and probably prolonged affair, which will not be triumphant. I think that Putin wants a triumph and not blood, sweat, and tears. And I'm afraid that invading Ukraine will be exactly that. It will not be a walk in the park. He has to kind of consider that. Although I agree that uh, he has sees a lot of things through a personal lens. We discussed Medvedchuk on previous podcasts. He sees it as a personal affront. But I also think that he has to consider kind of the balance, the options. And in fact, it must be clear to him that subjugating Ukraine is a much more difficult business than subjugating Belarus or Georgia, just for the sheer size and diversity of the country. And that must give him a pause for thought. And being the devil's advocate, you know, I was always pretty pessimistic about, for example, America's European allies, especially France and Germany, and uh, actually others too. Uh, but I think that it's clear that the cost for Putin will be very high. What is possible is actually that he will try and continue to pressure Ukraine into concessions. Uh, he will try and continue to break it. He may well even recognize uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk Republic, mm -hmm. so-called. But I'm afraid the march on Kiev is a completely different kettle of fish, as the English will say. And this is something that must give him a food for thought. It I gives him food for that, thought, but, but I, I think the ship is almost sailed. I think, you know, uh, I, I really think that he's boxed well, himself. Maybe, maybe you're right, you know, because there's one unknown here. Putin has been isolated for two, pretty much two years now. Yeah. Um, sitting in his bunker. 
having even the Easter church service alone, we've seen these amazing pictures of a church for one mm-hmm. on Easter, on, sorry, on Christmas. But in these circumstances, we don't know who tells him what. Is being brought to him by, by the FSB, the SVR, and uh, the military intelligence. He may well see the world in a different light, but then he may commit the mistake of his life. Mm-hmm. Maria, Maria, what do you want? Well, that's well, that's 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 very that's 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 I don't buy assertions like this about a huge economic cost that should deter uh, Russia, because in the past, uh, Russian policy to date, um, trying to understand and uh, understand Ukraine and predict uh, the behavior of Ukraine and its and the cost that Russia will incur as a result of its, of Ukraine, its actions of Ukraine has historically been a failure. So it's true that when it comes to the Kremlin record on Ukraine, yeah. they have a they have a, a created the history of miscalculation yeah. on that. So that is certainly a possibility that should concern all of us. And I think it's on actually on the Western policymakers to try to communicate to the Kremlin list as to the best of their capacity the possible cost, uh, because the Kremlin really fails uh, in that regard. Yeah, no, they have consistently miscalculated. I think think, think that is what the Biden administration was trying to do in the last actually 48 to 72 hours. And this was the first time I suddenly felt, okay, maybe, maybe, finally, they realized in Washington that actually, if you look at it from a purely pragmatic point of view, the only way to de-escalate Putin is to escalate your own uh, Mm. uh, actions. And uh, uh, the, uh, those signals from the State Department that actually they agreed with the Germans on shutting down Nord Stream 2, um, looking for alternative sources of energy for Europe. I mean, it's complicated because Europe doesn't have enough of LNG terminals, but still, I'm showing that the United States cares. Plus, kicking out 27 or whatever, two dozen uh, Russian diplomats, that is exactly the signs which the Kremlin will read uh, with, let us say, with attention. Mm-hmm. Because until now, they thought that Biden is some kind of very old dyadushka, old man who is uh, basically distracted all the time, and uh, his entourage is fighting between themselves. And anyway, they're all this kind of Democratic Party peaceniks that want uh, uh, nothing more than having yet another round of disarmament talks. But I think that if the signaling goes in this way, then there may be a change of attitudes uh, in the Kremlin. Look, although Lavrov was trolling uh, the United States, saying, okay, eventually the contents of your letter will be leaked somewhere. Uh, But they are still talking about more talks. First of all, Putin doesn't want to spoil uh, Olympic Games opening ceremony for Emperor Xi. I don't think he will start a war during that because I don't think the Chinese will like it. Secondly, we still don't know whether he's going to talk to Olaf Scholz, who the, the new German chancellor who suggested a conversation. I think that Putin is always for, for having conversation with the Germans because the Germans were such such soft targets until now. 
And actually, Lavrov is hinting at yet another talk, uh, a round of talks with Blinken, and then maybe talks between Putin and Biden. So to my mind, they're still buying some time. I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Probably they're not ready for invasion. You should ask our, our friend Michael Kaufman about that. I'm a former officer, but not, I'm not a military specialist. But I think that um, what Biden's been doing in the last literally three days has been, well, an interesting development. And my feeling is that maybe, just maybe, um, Lavrov's intransigers in Geneva played up or not, probably played against, mm. uh, uh, probably played against the Kremlin. Because in the end, even Biden uh, may have said, well, who do those people think we are? Mm. And I suppose that maybe there was a psychological miscalculation here. Maybe, mm. just maybe. Possibly. Marie, you wanted to jump in just be one, uh, briefly before we shift into the second half. Uh, Wrapping it back all to the Russian domestic opinion, right, uh, where we started, I wanted to point out that uh, there are interesting consequences for the U.S. domestic opinion. Kirill Rokov, Russian political analyst, who I cite here a lot, I think he's one of the best, uh, made this almost a paradoxical assumption about what may happen after... one of the reasons why the Kremlin might be trying to escalate from domestic viewpoint. In the last uh, years, we noticed that Russians actually stopped following um, the propaganda on TV channels and overall the audience of TV channels has has declined uh, substantively as people moved into internet. Uh, So what he argues is that creating escalation in Ukraine may redraw people back to TV channels because there's going to be a lot going on uh, in oh, Ukraine and people will want to watch that. And hence, uh, they will become more susceptible to being brainwashed by Russian propaganda and all other dimensions of that, which will potentially help Kremlin drive the ratings uh, back up. So that's it's all about driving, dri- driving Pervy Canal's ratings back up. That's 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 an interesting. Not take. not 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 the Pervy Canal, but the authorities' popularity, mm-hmm. right? Because if Russians are watching TV, that means uh, usually they're uh, they've been sold more propaganda about domestic situation too, mm-hmm. and like Putin better. So that it's true. There's such a correlation. So that's one possible uh, subtle reason behind everything that's going on. All right, well, that's a good way to segue, because in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at how a protracted war in Ukraine might influence Russian domestic politics. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city is another old friend of mine, Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Снова 
веком. So the last time Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014, Vladimir Putin's popularity shot into the stratosphere. Chants of Krim Nash were omnipresent and St. George's ribbons were ubiquitous. But this time what appears to be in store is not a stealth and limited operation in Crimea or the Donbas, but perhaps a full-scale Russian invasion that will result in a full-blown Ukrainian insurgency with the potential for mass casualties, not to mention the crippling sanctions that the West is promising to impose. Kostya, let's game this out. Let's just say the worst happens here. Let's just say Russia goes for a full-scale invasion. Um, let's just say I'm right and you're wrong. Um, and, and Putin goes for the full-scale invasion. How do you see a protracted war in Ukraine influencing Russia's domestic politics? Well, I have uh, a certain example from my own life, because when I was 15 and a half, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And people well, paid attention to some extent, But then they started paying more and more attention because bodies started to come back. And there, were, there, were, there weren't too many uh, uh, casualties. Uh, I think the official figure is about 13,000 killed during the war. But I remember my mother being worried, livid, that I will be called up and sent somewhere to get out or, or helmet. Uh, I wasn't drafted at the time. but. I think that very soon, uh, the public opinion, to the extent you could measure it, but you could talk to people, was saying, this is the war we don't need. But again, this is Afghanistan. It's not Ukraine. Ukraine is much closer. It's the younger brothers that went astray. So I think initially there will be quite some support for these actions. But if it is a bloody and protracted campaign, I do not think that Russians want such a war. Russians want small victorious wars in which no blood is shed and everyone is waving the Russian flags in the end. Uh, I think that some kind of major military campaign, which will also, I'm sure, cripple the Russian economy eventually, will, will not last in popularity, even if initially there is a lot of flag waving. Also, Ukraine is a diverse country. And even if Putin manages to Uh, I don't know, take over at least some parts of the East and South. The rest will be resisting. And actually, I think there will be resistance in the East mm. and in the South. I think that also then the massive expense of keeping these territories will kick in. Because Donbass, whatever Putin controls in Donbass, costs him, well, I wouldn't say nothing, but pretty cheap. This is a self-sufficient region with, I mean, very backward in terms of its economic structure, but it sells, it sells, it sells coal. Most mm -hmm. men are working as, you know, construction workers, taxi drivers or whatever across Russia and sending remittances to Luhansk and Donetsk. So, I mean, there are not too many people there. Uh, they all have Russian passports. So more or less they're feeding themselves. It's not luxurious life, but they're feeding themselves. Now, if you go for a full-scale occupation, then, of course, I'm sure 
there will be much more significant sanctions than there were in 2000. Oh, you're talking about crippling sanctions. You're talking about export restrictions. You're talking about a SWIFT ban. You're talking about uh, sovereign debt being sanctioned. Absolutely. In markets. You're talking Absolutely. about banks being forbidden from working in the U.S. dollar. You're talking about stuff that is going to have a crippling, crippling effect. Absolutely. And, and one, on top of it, you'll have Ukrainian resistance. And on top of it, you'll have uh, Ukrainian resistance. You'll have Ukrainian resistance. You'll probably have parts of Ukraine which will be not occupied. Uh, I cannot imagine Putin taking Western Ukraine. I mean, no, it, no, it, no. It, I'm it, expecting the. I'm expecting left bank Ukraine in an attempt to encircle Kiev with troops coming down from Belarus. That's what I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. Yes. Um, maybe, but again, that would be a very bloody affair. Yes, it would. And I think that um, if it is prolonged, then uh, the odds will be stacking up against Putin uh, over time. Moral, this will put uh, a big question to the Russian elite, because uh, since 2014, essentially, they were not hit hard. Uh, in new circumstances of a major European world, we are talking about 1940. That's yeah. the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about potentially the largest armed conflict in Europe since the Second World War. That's what we're yeah. talking about. And yeah. I, I've been reading articles lately that the business community in Russia is getting very nervous. Um, and the business community, of course, is not very, very much separated from the political elite. Um, Maria, what do you do? Do you, do you think this could have an impact in, on elite opinion in Russia? Never mind public opinion. In addition to public opinion. Uh, on the elite opinion, I think there's a lot of hypotheticals here because nobody really knows what's going on uh, behind the under the Kremlin's rugs. But what we can say for sure that previous predictions of uh, the U.S. sanctions being able to force the elite split have turned out uh, to be wrong. Right? Yes. We have failed so far to uh, incur the, the sanctions have so far have not been able to incur any costs to the extent that would uh, overcome other considerations. Let's say that the elites are facing, and what are the elites facing? That. First of all, uh, there's a lot of uh, fear. That, no, let's let's have a, a different point. First of all, uh, Putin is taking Putin and his closest allies are not uh, business are not businessmen. First and foremost, those are hawkish people who have other priorities, other silence. The Putin is rumored to have surrounded himself with uh, Shoigu, Bastrykin, Patrushev. Those are all. Yeah. Hawkish uh, people who have don't don't have uh, so you're interests are not Kabul, Kabul Chuk and Timchenko and the, no, the, they're the not. They're, they're, they're more distant circle. They're not decision sure. makers when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Yeah. They they allies, but there's like more distant circles. Uh, second of all, there is a very uh, Putin compensates those who have been hurt by Russian sanctions quite generously. That has been the policy that's been quite pronounced. And as uh, Kosi himself has said, uh, he now has money to do that because of the unprecedented level of revenues. Uh, flowing into Russian budgets because of the gas and oil prices. Third, uh, for those who for whom carrots uh, do not work, there is sticks, and the repressions against the elites are extremely pronounced. On the re precisely because uh, Putin, the Kremlin regime, realizes that those are not like the Soviet uh, Soviet time elites, sort of are stuck in Russia. These are elites with uh, um, uh, flow, like uh, with um, assets families located in the West. And so to ensure their loyalty, the Kremlin has been implemented unprecedented uh, wave of uh, repression against the elites since 2015. 
there's a lot of work uh, done in that regard, and the Russian elites and oligarchs are all extremely afraid. This is one and uh, clear uh, kind of sense that you get uh, travel in Russia, the fear that has now spread into the broader population, but it certainly is present at the top of the elites. Uh, all the three factors combined make the Russian elites, in my opinion, not in factor, not a serious factor in influence Putin's uh, calculus in such important events. They might be a constraint, but they're not a decisive factor that's likely to shift him, his opinion. Uh, on the broader, from the broader perspective, looking at the Russian society's priority and how the war is likely to impact uh, Putin's uh, rating, I just want to, wanted to also reference a recently Vada poll. Uh, that, that's the question that the Vada has been asking Russians for 20 years. Uh, it postulates an explicit trade-off between a vision of Russia as a great militaristic power and one that may be less militaristic but more developed, uh, more developed economically. Uh, and uh, essentially the question asks, would you prefer Russia to be first and foremost a great power that other countries respect and fear, or a country with a high standard of living, maybe not one of the most military strong countries in the world? So the interesting thing about 20, the 2021, uh, when this question was asked for 20th year in a row, is that we see a big number of Russians who emphasize a well-developed economy. Mm. over militaristic power. Uh, this dynamic is particularly pronounced this year, so it's clear that the societal demand is not in favor of war. Society wants economic development, economic growth, well-being. Having said that, uh, back in 2014, we also comparable numbers when it comes to this response. Not as high number of Russians who want economic development, first and foremost, but still there were more of them than those who said they want militaristic mm. power. And yet they did not prevent, as we remember, the Putin rating from skyrocketing. So that right. all ultimately comes down to, first of all, the cost that's incurred on Putin when, it's, uh, when he goes to Ukraine, uh, going back to the same point, both economic and in terms of, uh, you know, human sacrifice. Unfortunately, mm. if Russians see a lot of dead bodies coming back, uh, to Russia, that's probably not going to be treated very favorably by the society. We're bumping up against the end here. I'm cognizant of the clock, but I'm, Maria, I just want to throw one more thing out here and give you the last word here. As you mentioned, sanctions in the past have been un, you know, unsuccessful in splitting the elite, but we've never seen sanctions in the past like the sanctions that are being proposed now. I mean, we're talking about some very serious things, like an export ban on semiconductors, an export ban on high tech. You're basically talking about taking all of Russia's iPhones away from them, you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's going to be serious. And in, in addition to the effects that's going to have on the broader economy, cutting the economy off from the global economy, I mean, that's going to have serious, serious implications for standard of living. Would, could this be the time, given this environment, that this that the, that the sanctions actually do have the desired effect inside of Russia, given what we're talking about here? Us. Certainly, the options that are being under considerations are much stronger than anything that we've seen before. However, again, I'm a little bit skeptical about how serious they're going to be. First of all, SWIFT. SWIFT has been postulated as a, such a dramatic, horrible effect on Russian economy. However, a lot of macroeconomic analysts are saying right now that the effects of this uh, step are overappreciated. It's true that it's going to hurt the Russian economy. It's not likely to fundamentally undermine its capacity to run business. Export mm. controls are also important, but it depends what sort of export controls. Uh, again, we see a lot of technological sanctions have been imposed on Russia, but those are more of a longer term. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, technolo technologies Russia is able to substitute for China. So that's but important. But not, semi not semiconductors. Not semiconductors. Okay. 
We'll see about semiconductors, but the iPhones, I think the effect of banning iPhones is a little bit over-exaggerated. Over yet it's true, it's going to hurt let the Russian middle class. Those are not supporters of Russia, of Putin, either way. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Kostya, yes. last word to you. Here, here for a sec. I think that uh, I'm, quite, I, I'm quite on board with Maria on the selection of sanctions that could look tough, but be not that tough for the Kremlin. However, I think that if, for example, uh, Biden chooses of the list of banks that were offered by Congress, if he chooses to sanction Alpha Bank and Sberbank. Yep, that's what, um, and I think that's, that's what they're thinking about doing. Uh, no, I don't think the yeah. Sberbank is going to be sanctioned. That's completely implausible. That's not something the US administration is well, going to do. Let's just, let's just face it. Sberbank is 80%, like one third of all of the banking assets. It's it's just not going to happen. Let's discuss something feasible. In the past, the US administration has not been able to implement remotely so strong sanctions. They're going to pick some of these less influential banks. And it's going to bite a little bit, but it's not going to be Sberbank, I'm pretty sure. The Sberbank, it's most of Russian economy. And it's going to be absolute disaster, of course, for the Russian economy. But the problem is that it's not likely to happen at well, all. Well, Maria, I am of the mind that we are entering into a totally different world. And what we were unable to do in the past does not mean it's not something we'll be unable to do now. So I, I am not ruling out sanctioning Sparebank. I think it would be a big step. Uh, I think it would be the most consequential sanction step we could possibly take, even more important than a SWIFT ban, even more important than, than, than sovereign debt on the secondary markets, and even more important even than export restrictions. But I would be, I would not be so quick to rule it out just yet. I agree with you. We've not done it in the past, and it's not something to be taken lightly. But if we understand that we're entering a new world if Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, a full-on reinvades Ukraine with a full-on invasion. We're in a new world, and things that looked impossible in the past are suddenly going to look uh, pretty mainstream pretty soon. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, I've even gone over time, um, so that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant and professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, has been another old friend and and colleague Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thanks a lot for having us, Brian. Thank you. Thank and you. Also I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.